Well, if you're not already there, you can find your way to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 22. Pastor Dale read it at the outset. And no, I don't have amnesia. I'm going to read it again. We intentionally read the text uh, repeatedly throughout the service because if you're anything like me, um, you're easily distracted and need things repeated over and over. So we're going to read from God's word. We'll walk our way through the passage uh, verse by verse and draw out some lessons from it. Leviticus chapter 23 verse 15 You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall bring a new grain offering near to Yahweh. By the way, this is page 170 in the church Bible, if you're late. Verse 17, you shall bring in from your places of habitation two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour baked with, notice this, baked with leaven as first fruits to Yahweh. Along with the bread, you shall bring near seven one-year-old lambs without blemish and a bull from the herd and two rams, and they shall be a burnt offering to Yahweh. And their grain offering and their drink offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one-year-old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before Yahweh. They shall be holy to Yahweh for the priest. On the same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all the places of habitation throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the afflicted and the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. Oh Lord, again, we ask that you would give us understanding into your word that this would not be a mere lecture on ancient Near Eastern holidays, but that you would feed our souls and help us to see its implications and applications as new covenant believers. Lord, work through your word in a way that would help us to see the glory of Jesus, that would draw those who do not know you to a saving knowledge of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes families, right around a month or so before Christmas, have certain Advent traditions that they do. Certain ways to count down until Christmas. In our family, we have this little wooden Christmas tree that has 24 doors on that tree, 
each representing a different day in the month of December. And each day we open up the little door and inside that door is a little sheet of paper that has a scripture verse on it. And each of these scripture verses highlights a different uh, title or name of the Lord Jesus. And we do that each day. And sometimes if the children are well behaved, there may even be some candy inside that little door there. And if they behave themselves during family Bible time, they just might receive the little candies. So we have different ways of counting down till, ho- to, till the holiday. And there's a kind of excitement in the air, right? There's only seven days before Christmas. We're on number 15. We're on number 16. You make your way all the way until December 25th. And then it's Christmas. Well, in a very similar way, the ancient Israelites had a countdown holiday. A kind of Advent season that existed between the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost, which, interestingly enough, was another kind of first fruits holiday. In fact, it gets its very name that comes to us in our English translations, especially in Acts chapter 2, of Pentecost, because pente means 50, 50 days. There was a countdown for this holiday. And we find ourselves in the midst of a series. You may be visiting with us and thinking, what on earth are we doing in Leviticus chapter 23? We, at one point, started in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, and we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. We took a little pit stop along the way after we hit chapter 16. But now we're in the midst of a series going through chapter 23, which is a kind of catalog of the different feasts of Israel. And we have observed with each of these feasts, they are pregnant with all kinds of symbolic meaning that we found in wonderful ways point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The first one starts with some pretty low-hanging fruit, right? With the the feast of Passover, uh, which... There's the Passover lamb, which again, when we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus himself was that Passover lamb. And he even died in God's sovereign hand of providence on the day of Passover. And then we moved on to look at the feast of unleavened bread, which was a a seven-day feast that began the day immediately after Passover, in which there was to be eating of Unleavened bread, that's flat bread, like pita. And again, we saw just as Christ on Saturday lay flat in that tomb, Jesus was buried on Saturday and he lie in the tomb. And then there's the Feast of First Fruits, uh, which was on Sunday on that Passion Week calendar in which the Apostle Paul, which the, the, the celebration of that, we looked at that last week, was bringing out the first fruits of the barley harvest, which was the initial crop in ancient Israel. And, uh, and, and this was a promise of things to come. And we see the Apostle Paul piggyback off of that language in 1 Corinthians 15 and say Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the sheave offering, the first one to be resurrected with a glorified body. And so he himself is the promise that one day for all those who die in Christ, for all those who've trusted in Christ, 
their body will not lie in the grave forever, but God will raise it glorified to be united with their spirit in heaven, ultimately on a new heavens and new earth. And so that was the first three feasts, which traced from the the death, the burial, to the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a sense in which you almost like want, you know, the feast to end there. I mean, what, how much better could it get? But the Lord is not done with the feast in Leviticus 23. And beginning in verse 15, he mentions a, a kind of first fruits feast part B, which includes accounting. Verse 15 says, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering. So he's basically saying from the from the feast of first fruits, there shall be a complete seven Sabbaths. So seven weeks after. Verse 16. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall bring a new grain offering near to Yahweh. So I mentioned this is similar to the Feast of First Fruits, the difference was the kind of crop. The Feast of First Fruits was earlier in the spring, you know, like April, May, where they brought out the barley harvest and the initial sheaf. And this was bringing out the grain, the first fruits of the grain, which would come evidently some 50 days later. And so this also was to have a kind of ritual ceremony. And also keep in mind, this was to be observed like the Feast of First Fruits after they are in the land. The original audience who's, who's hearing Moses and ultimately reading Moses and what he wrote down here, uh, they were in the desert. It's hard to grow barley in the desert. It's hard to grow wheat in the desert. So God said, when you get in the land, this is what you're supposed to do. And so for that generation, it wasn't to some 40 years that they were stuck in the desert that they would finally get into the promised land to actually be able to observe these feasts, the Feast of First Fruit and the Feast of Pentecost as we're seeing here. Verse 17. You shall bring in from your places of habitation two loaves of bread for a wave offering. So again, here we have another wave offering, you know. It's to be waved uh, before the Lord. And this is symbolic that, that God is the one who has provided everything from the east to the west to the north to the south. And the first sheave offering with, uh, the first wave offering, I'm sorry, was the sheaves of the barley. But here, it's the new grain offering. It's the, 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 the grain offering from the wheat. And this, the specifications are given here in verse 17 is to be made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. And here, notice this little detail. Baked, not without, but with leaven as first fruits to Yahweh. This bread was to be poofy bread, okay? To be bread that had yeast in it, that, that was light, not like the flat pita-like bread, okay? And, and it's interesting because all throughout um, 
so much of Leviticus, there's this call for unleavened bread. And we saw that part of the symbolism of of the, the, the leaven is sin and purging out the leaven with the, the feast of the unleavened bread. But why, why would there be instructions here for yeast to be put in there? Well, it seems to me, remember, part of the symbolism of unleavened bread was gird up your loins, get your staff out, don't put yeast in the bread, you need to be ready to go. But remember, this feast is not when they're in Egypt ready to go. This feast is for when? I already told you, when they're in the land, right? In other words, you're staying put. This is your dwelling. This is where you are going to meet with your God. You can sit there and let the bread rise. You can take the sandals off your feet. You can put the staff down. It's the promised land. Verse 18, along with the bread, you shall bring, oh, and by the way, I'll just draw your attention to it from verse 17 before we move on. How many loaves were there? Two loaves. Verse 18, along with the bread, you shall bring near seven one-year-old lambs without blemish and a bull from the herd and two rams, and they shall be a burnt offering to Yahweh with their grain and drink offering, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Yahweh. So here there's instructions for, uh, for seven one-year-old lambs, a bull, two rams, and these were to be burnt offerings to Yahweh. Now remember, the burnt offering the, uh, was the, 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 the entire animal was consumed on the altar. And this specifically was because of the Israelites' sin. This was a transference of guilt. The whole animal had to be consumed. All of God's wrath had to be appeased on that altar. And then, that wasn't the only kind of offering. In verse 18, there was also another libation offering here, drink offerings, and grain offering. And all of this was to be a soothing aroma to the Lord. This, the Lord would be pleased with this. And then in verse 19, you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering. Remember the sin offering, this is the purification offering because uh, uncleanness was coming into the tabernacle. It had to be purged in uncleanness with the worshipers. And then two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, the peace offering, we saw this in Leviticus chapter 3, this offering was, was the only offering in which the worshiper could partake of it. This is the only offering where some of it was consumed on the altar, some of it was given to the priest, and some of it was enjoyed by the worshiper and their family, and sometimes even their friends. And so it was a celebration of peace. It was a celebration of reconciliation with God. And also, a very interesting note concerning this peace offering, similar to the, the first fruit grain offering of two loaves of bread. It says in verse 20, the priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits. The, the them refers back to the peace offering, which again was two male lambs. So you have two male lambs 
and two loaves of bread were to be part of this wave offering. Now, I don't know if that meant that two different priests, you know, you only have two hands, right? Uh, you know, uh, or if there was some kind of juggling act between lambs and, and loaves, uh, or if there was two priests, each of them, one holding a lamb, one holding uh, the, the loaves, I don't know. But either way, the, the, there's clear symbol, symbolism with two. Verse 21. On the same day you shall, take a proclam- you shall make a proclamation as well. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your places of habitation throughout your generations. So, again, this is instruction given here that this was to be a Sabbath rest. And by the way, all of these feasts flowed out of the weekly Sabbath. That's the first day that's mentioned at the beginning of Leviticus. So all these were Sabbath holy days. No work was to be done on them. And also notice here, because you may trip over this, this was a perpetual statute. And the idea here is as long as Israel was in covenant relationship with God, this was to be observed. Now, obviously, you know, when's the last time you observed Pentecost? Probably never, right? Uh, So why don't we observe it today? Because we're not under that same covenant that Israel is under. We are new covenant believers, not old covenant believers. Verse 21 or I'm sorry, verse 22. When you reap, and this is very interesting, this is, he concludes with this, because again, this would have been the harvest reaping uh, of the wheat. Verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleanings of your harvest. You are to leave them for the afflicted and the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. So here God gives this specific instruction because this is, and this by the way is not new. We saw this earlier on in the book of Leviticus that there, there was command, a command here that when you harvested your fields, you didn't harvest them all the way out to the edge. And you also didn't gather the gleanings. The gleanings were what was left after the first run through of the harvest. And so the idea here was to leave the edges and also the leftovers that got missed in the first run through of picking all, you know, and you know, think about this. If you go out to your garden, you know, you have all these tomatoes out there, you do one run through, but you don't, you know, you're not pulling everything off. Uh, You may miss some things, you know, especially if you're colorblind. Sometimes you miss a bean here or some other vegetable here and, and, uh, and so there's things that get left. And, and what Moses is saying, that the Lord is saying through Moses, is leave them there. You know, don't, don't pull everything. Why? The end of verse 22, the afflicted, the, the destitute poor, which would have included the widows of society, those who were in utter desperation, who, who were, who were uh, you know, living meal to meal. In the sojourner, those who were not residents of the land, they, they, they were immigrants. Leave it for them so that they can benefit. And it was a kind of a welfare work program. It didn't cultivate laziness because you had to actually go out there. In fact, the, the harvesting would have been probably more difficult work because there's not as much there. 
Um, I mentioned this before when we talked about this, but this is work. You know, did you ever pick blueberries? You know, you spend hours, you know, and after like an hour, you got this little thing of blueberries. It's not much, right? You know, and you're like, man, was this even worth it? I'm going giant eagle next time. Uh, you know, because, but this forced them that, that this wasn't a handout. They needed to work for it, but it was a way to provide for those who are destitute poor. Well, what do we learn from this? Okay, what do we learn from this ancient holiday? Well, first of all, to praise God for his provision. So much like with the Feast of First Fruits, this was another kind of first fruit holiday where this was acknowledging God has brought forth this harvest. And this first of the harvest, we are going to wave before him as a very public acknowledgement that God is the one who puts food on our table. God is the one who brought the rain. God is the one who brought the sun. God is the one who kept off all the multitudes of, of insects and vermin that, that could have destroyed our crop or the hailstorm that did several years back to destroy our crop. God is the one who has provided for us and he he will get the praise. We see this reflected as Moses writes about this later on in the Torah in Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12, it says, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain, to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the feast of weeks to Yahweh your God. So it's talking about the same feast, this Pentecost, this feast of weeks. And he says, and this seems to be in Deuteronomy, he's talking to the individual Israelite. Which keep in mind, by the way, there's just an aside. There was three pilgrimage feasts. And one of them was the, the Passover. One of them was the Feast of Pentecost. And then later on in the fall was the Feast of Booths. So those were the three times where uh, Israelites would come to the tabernacle or later on come to the temple. And so in Deuteronomy 16, there's instructions given, not so much to the priest, but here to the individual Israelite. When you come for this feast, this feast of weeks or this feast of Pentecost, come with a tribute of a free will offering in your hand, which you shall give just as Yahweh your God blesses you. So he mentions this free will offering. What is a free will offering? Well, the free will offering in the Old Testament we saw actually in, in uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 3. It was a subcategory of the peace offering. It was a subcategory of the peace offering where the Israelite brought this offering not so much uh, because of their sin to atone for their sin, but they brought this sacrifice as a just, just a way of expressing love and thanks to God. There was no obligation. It wasn't because of their sin. It wasn't because of something they had done. It was just a way of expressing love to God. And also because, because it was under that subcategory of peace offerings, the Israelite also partook of that offering. And so it was a kind of joyous occasion. It was a joyous celebration. It was a kind of a barbecue to enjoy 
the, the meat that God had provided. In verse 11 of Deuteronomy 16 it says, And you shall be glad before Yahweh your God. You and your son and your daughter and your male and female slaves and the Levite who is within your gates and the sojourner and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in the place where Yahweh your God chooses for his name to dwell. And you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You shall be careful to observe all these statutes. And so God gives specific instructions here that this was a, this was a holiday of rejoicing. God has provided. God has delivered you. You're in the land. Rejoice. Bring your free will offerings. Don't you love the Lord? Aren't you happy in God for his gracious dealings with you? That you weren't one of those Egyptians strewn on the shore of the Red Sea? That you weren't one of those Egyptians who woke up to the lifeless body of your firstborn son, but that God delivered you out of Egypt. And so this was a, a praise to God for his provision, his provision, his physical provisions, but also his very real, very real spiritual provision of his kindness and grace. And so you can see here, there's much application for us, right? You are recipients of his kindness, of his provision towards you. God has dealt kindly with you. Remember when you were in your unbelief, wallowing in the mire of your own sin and darkness and filth. And God, in the wonder of his grace, he brought a messenger of grace to tell you about the Lord Jesus. And God, in the wonder of his kindness, opened your eyes so that you saw he died for me. He set his love upon me. He offers me full forgiveness of sin, full pardon. And you, in the wonder of his grace, laid out your hand by faith and you received that gift. And so, you too can express praise to this God by giving your, your life to him. The hymn writer wrote, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. This is Romans 12.1, right? After the Apostle Paul lays out the wonders of God's kindness and salvation towards sinners, 
The doctrines of justification and adoption and, and election and all his kindness towards his people and, and their security in him that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he turns the corner in Romans 12.1 and says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and pleasing. This is your spirit service of worship new covenant believers you can offer your life unto the Lord as an expression as a free will offering of love and thanks oh God that you would be kind to me so that in the workplace it's an act of worship as you seek to do your work unto him When you're doing laundry, yes, that monotonous laundry that seems to never cease, it's eternal. Dirty clothes just keep filling up and filling up. And yet you can fold clothes and do laundry unto the glory of God saying, Lord, thank you. I'll serve my family and do this as unto you. In your studies, students, in the monotony of memorization and, 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 and studying whatever subject it may be, whether it's math or whether it's Latin or whether it's English, here's an opportunity for you to devote your mind as an act of worship to the Lord. Lord, I want to use my brain power unto you and help me to learn and understand this world that you have created so that I can be an instrument in your hand. And this is what this feast teaches us. God has been the one who has given and we can, as an act of worship and devotion to him, Offer our free will offering to him. But also with this, kind of under the same category of praising God for his provision, was to have, it, have this open hand towards those in need. We've, we've talked about this in previous weeks. We talked about it actually last week with the Feast of first fruits. But it's worth rem- rem- remembering again. Verse 22 gives this specific instruction towards the destitute, towards the sojourner, the afflicted and the sojourner, not to harvest out to the edge of your fields. When you hear of those in need, to, be, to have a heart of compassion, to reach out. I was thrilled that we had over 22 people, over 20 people yesterday willing to, Go into the danger zone. (laughs) And to come with open hand to those who might have needs. What a joyous thing it was. Because God has been gracious towards us. But not only to praise God for his provision. Praise God for the plentiful produce The plentiful produce. What do I mean by that? The produce, I should complete this, the plentiful produce of people. For this, you have to turn 
to one of the three instances in the New Testament where this feast is mentioned. You probably already know where I'm going. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Actually, it starts in Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts is like volume 2 of the gospel of Luke. Luke is the human author of both of these. And when we come to Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. So, you know, we, we have, you know, the, the, the three feasts have taken place already. The Passover, Jesus died. Unleavened bread, he was buried in lie flat. Feast of first fruits, he rose from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1, it says, so when they had, uh, in verse 6, 1, 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, but he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has set by his own authority. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He's talking to his, uh, his apostles, and they're asking him questions, and basically he tells them, you're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know this. Verse 8, but this you need to know. You will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria even to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus tells them you are going to receive power from the Holy Spirit and you are going to be my witnesses But do you remember if you drop your eyes back to verse 4, his instructions to them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Now, keep in mind, remember I told you God instructed the Israelites three times a year to come to worship at the temple. And the first time had already happened. The Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, which were all within three days. And so now would have been the time to go back home. If you lived in Galilee, go back to Galilee. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You wait. You wait. You wait. You wait. And wouldn't you know, the next holy day on the calendar was the Feast of Pentecost. 50 days later. Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came, a heaven, uh, came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves and the rest and, and and they rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit was giving them utterance 
So they wait, they wait, they wait, and then, sure enough, the next holy day comes, it's Pentecost, and then God comes. God, the Holy Spirit, comes. He comes in this powerful way, so much that it says in verse 4 that they're speaking in tongues. Now, when we read that, there's a temptation to import all of your knowledge and experience with tongues into this verse, okay? You know, so you may have been at some crazy (laughs) church service and now you've imported that on what's going on here. The the word tongues, it's it's actually, it, it, it was a good translation in 1611, Uh, but might not be as helpful now. It simply means languages. We do still use the word word in that kind of way for languages, you know. Uh, My wife speaks another tongue, Uh, another language, okay? In other words, a language that's not English. Um, Or how about Charles Wesley's great hymn, Oh, for what? A thousand tongues to sing. It's not because Charles Wesley was charismatic. It's because, oh, for a thousand languages to sing his praise. Okay? So that's what's going on here. They're speaking in languages that they never learned. And this is a miracle. Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together... And, and, and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So there are people from all over the world. Remember, Pentecost was one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And so people have come from all over the world who fear the Lord to come and worship in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to another country that doesn't speak English. I'm not talking about Canada here, okay? Canada doesn't count, okay? Another country where they don't speak English. And so you're surrounded by all these people who don't speak English, and when you hear somebody speaking in English, you're like, oh, my people, right? Or some of you who may be from another country, and you hear somebody speaking in your native tongue from this other country. Ah, oh, one of my people. And, and you just kind of gravitate to it. It gets your attention, right? Well, imagine that. Imagine, you know, you've come from some different part of the world. And you're in Israel. You expect them to be speaking probably Aramaic, maybe some Greek. You know, Greek was the lingua franca of the day. But you start hearing them speaking in your native tongue. Now they've got your attention. Verse 7. They were astounded and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? These are Galileans here. How is it that we each hear them in our own tongue in which we were born? Again, this is evidence that, because it's the same word here, we're hearing them in our own language. The language we spoke, you know, mama, dada, gugu, gaga in. The language we learned from youth. How are we understanding them in our language? 
Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the district of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Verse 12, and they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, were saying, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. It's not even happy hour. It's early in the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel, I believe chapter 2, He's saying this is what God said when he would pour out his spirit in the latter days. The latter days began at Pentecost here. And then drop your eyes down to verse 22. So this is the same context. Peter's explaining these things to them. Peter's preaching to them. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he goes on and, and, and quotes all these Old Testament passages that prophesy of the Messiah and his resurrection and his kingship. And then drop your eyes down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. And again, notice that the second person plural here. He's pointing his bony finger at them. You crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? So they've just witnessed some crazy stuff here. First of all, they're hearing the apostles speaking to them in their own first language. And then Peter gets up and says, this is what God said was going to happen, that God was going to come down through his spirit. Joel prophesied about this. And this is what's taking place. And this is all taking place because this Jesus whom you crucified has been risen from the dead. And so their response is, oh my goodness, what have we done? The promised anointed king has been executed. And we have made contribution to this. What should we do? Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. 
and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So what's going on here? Remember, the feast, this feast of weeks, was a harvest feast. It's a harvest feast. It's bringing the first fruits of the wheat harvest in anticipation that God is going to bring more. And God in his divine calendar, just like all the other, other feasts, pointed to the work of Christ. Here, this is pointing to the work of the Spirit of Christ. This great harvest that he brings about. That there is going to be an ingathering of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to bow their knee to Jesus. An ingathering here of 3,000 people repenting and publicly putting their shirt on for Team Jesus through the waters of baptism. Saying, I identify with him. That one who died, was buried, and rose from the dead. I will too go through the waters of baptism and identify with him in his death and burial and resurrection. I'm on team Jesus. So what we have here with Pentecost is a kind of prophetic picture of God is going to build his church. That In a very real sense, people are going to be a sacrifice unto the Lord. An ingathering, a harvest of people. An early church writer, Chrysostom, nicknamed Golden Mouth. It's a great nickname for a preacher. He wrote, what is this Pentecost? The time when the sickle was to be put to the harvest and the ingathering was made. Then he wrote that the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the church and 3,000 were saved. He said, here as the sickle, the keen edge came the Spirit down. Henry Law commenting on this says, the world also is a widespread plain thick set with never dying souls these call for the ingathering they must be severed from their earthly ties they must be brought into the gospel garner will not labor's labor here every grain is in, inter- in here every grain is an eternity What shall they perish through neglect? Forbid it all who feel for souls and love the Lord and glory in his triumphs. What is he saying here? Henry Law is saying the harvest is plentiful. You see, Pentecost teaches us Jesus died. He rose from the dead. And now there's a mission for his people. 
to join in what he did on the day of Pentecost and in the ingathering of souls. And it came through Peter preaching the message about Jesus. Peter, Peter summoning them, respond to this message, repent, turn to the Lord Jesus. He died, he rose from the dead. So friend, you may be sitting here and maybe you've not yet repented and believed in the Lord Jesus. I echo the words of the apostle Peter and say, repent and be baptized. Are you cut to the heart like those People in Acts 2 were weighed down by your sin, weighed down by your guilt. I tell you that the Lord Jesus died for sinners. He rose from the dead for sinners. He offers full forgiveness of sins. If you but repent, that means you turn to him. You say, I'm done going my own way. I'm done going my own direction. I turn to him. I follow him. I trust in him alone for my eternal salvation. It's simple. Even a child can do it by God's grace. Even a child can believe. Turn to him. And also for those who, of you who have turned, as Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. He said in the context of the woman at the well and the Samaritan in gathering, he says, look, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. And just then there was an ingathering among the Samaritans based upon the testimony of this woman. This man told me everything I ever did. She said, you need to go listen to that guy there. So simple. Jesus on another occasion says, the harvest is plentiful. Pray for laborers to go into the harvest. Friend, you don't have to have the IQ of Albert Einstein to see that this world is going topsy-turvy and it's clown world out there. And friend, we have the truth of God's word. All the great Questions of life are answered by God giving us his word. Why do we exist? What is the point of it all? What is right? What is wrong? Who is God? Who is man? How can I have a relationship with this great God? He's given it all to us. The message of Christianity. We have light and truth to offer to this dying world. We have hope. We were able to do that yesterday in East Palestine in the midst of a context of these people with children uncertain of their own health, uncertain of their children's health. No way, I mean, who's going to buy their house? They can't get out of there. But we can tell them that as bad as these chemicals are, it's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is that you are going to die and after that face the judgment. But there is a great God in heaven who sent the Lord Jesus so that you can escape his frowns in judgment and have the promise of eternal life forever and ever with him in a world without train wrecks and chemical spills. You can have hope. Friend, we have a good, wonderful message we can share with the world. 
Yes, I understand there's some hard edges to it at first. You know, sin, judgment, hell. But it gets good after that. It gets happy after that. And so sometimes we just have to cross that pain threshold. And I get it, my friends. There's that pain threshold. Like, okay, if I start pushing this a little bit more, it's going to get really uncomfortable. This conversation is going to get really awkward. It's okay. It's okay because we have the gospel that is more precious than anything. Well, we need to move on. I do have a third point. I always have a third point. To praise God for his provision. To praise God for his plentiful produce of people. And thirdly, to praise God for peace restored. Now, I alluded to this earlier. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 17, there's two loaves of bread. And then also there's a peace offering of two lambs. And and these also were part of the wave offering. So, So there's these two of both and they're both waved. And I cannot help but thinking... That the Apostle Paul, and, and, I, and I think also Luke is alluding to this, that tucked within the symbolism of the Feast of Pentecost and the two loaves with one grain offering and the two lambs with one peace offering and then the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost when these apostles are speaking in foreign tongues and there's an ingathering and there's people from, from all over the world that what God is communicating is that he is going to do something new and big and grand with this thing called the church. It's not going to consist only of Jewish people. It's going to include Jews And yes, even those filthy Gentiles together, two in one. Jesus spoke of this when he said in John chapter 10, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jews and Gentiles within one fold. The apostle Paul, I believe, was directly alluding to this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember, he's talking to the Gentiles, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. Remember that you, you Gentiles in the flesh, which Gentile just means non-Jewish. If you're Jewish, you're not a Gentile. If you're Gentile, you're not Jewish. You Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time Without Christ, you were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups One, and broke down the dividing wall of partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two, two loaves, two lambs, into one new man making peace. The peace offering. 
and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What is this talking about? What I'm saying, what I'm contending is that built into the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, whatever you want to call it, was the, the, the ritual of the two wave offerings, which is signifying that one day both Jew and Gentile would be one before the Lord through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And this is good news. This is reason to celebrate. Because, I could be wrong, but I think the vast majority of people in this room are goyim, Gentiles. Gentiles. And this is the beauty of the body of Christ, that he reconciles God in reconciling rebels to himself, reconciles sinners to themselves, to one another. So that I've seen beautiful things happen in the body of Christ. People from all variety of skin colors and ethnicities and, and socioeconomic classes and education backgrounds and, and nobility and, and upbringing, all that just seems to kind of fade in the background because of the greatest realities of people's identity is found in Christ. It's a beautiful thing to see. I remember years ago leading a men's study in Los Angeles. It consisted of a guy from Mexico, a guy from El Salvador, a guy from Iran, a Jewish guy. Yes, a Jewish guy and a guy from Iran. A guy from Armenia, an Armenian who's from Iraq. But all of them loved Jesus. And yes, while they didn't shed all their distinctive ethnicities, they each spoke with their peculiar accents and various skin tones and all of that. But there was something that united them that went beyond skin tone, amounts of melanin, dialects, accents, language, culture, all of that. Friend, that's the reality in the body of Christ that we should celebrate, that we should praise God for. There's quite frankly nothing like it on planet earth because it's when God brings reconciliation between us and him, there is then this desire and motivation to be reconciled to one another. What's fascinating is one strand of Jewish tradition I mentioned the the counting at the beginning one strand of Jewish tradition one of their kind of counting advent traditions was every day for those 50 days up until Pentecost to read a passage of scripture to read a psalm to read a psalm that had seven verses representing the seven weeks and guess what psalm it was Psalm 67, 
Listen to Psalm 67. Be gracious to us, O God, and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known in all the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and lead the nations on the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. O God, our God blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. This psalm was read every day. This psalm that was a prayer that God's name would be glorified amongst the Gentiles. And then finally, in space and time, some 2,000 years ago, on that day of Pentecost, God brought an ingathering of Gentiles, creating this one new man we call the church. And he does it through the blood of the cross. Through the great reconciler. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Don Richardson tells of his long struggle to bring the gospel to a cannibalistic, headhunting tribe in Indonesia. In fact, when Richardson finally learned the language, there came a day when he had an opportunity to tell them the gospel. He started with Christ's miraculous birth, his life, his ministry. And then proceeded to the end of Jesus' time on earth. So imagine this. He's finally translated into the language of this people. He's thrilled to tell them about Jesus and what he did. And he sets the stage talking about how Jesus made this final journey to Jerusalem. And the incredible reception of the people on Palm Sunday. And then he tells them about the treachery of Judas. Who had worked behind the scenes to betray Jesus to death. And to his shock and horror, when he finished telling them about the traitor, Judas, the people loved Judas. He was the hero of the story. Richardson was appalled by their reaction. He discovered that the highest virtue of their culture was deceit. And Judas was the greatest example of deceit about which they had ever heard. And so here's a man who had successfully betrayed to death, a great and good man, and thus Judas was their instant hero. It was, it was obvious to Richardson, he had his work cut out for him if he was going to bring the gospel to this people. You see, these people were constantly fighting with each other, and treachery and revenge and murder were highly esteemed virtues in their culture. There seemed to be no hope to bring the gospel to this people. It seemed as if it would not be easy for such a people to understand God's redemption in Jesus. But lo and behold, there was a legendary custom of making peace. It required a father in one of the warring villages to make an incredible sacrifice. He had to be willing to give up one of his children as a peace child to the neighboring enemy tribe. And as long as that child remained alive the two groups would be at peace with one another. Don Richardson realized that was his inroads to the gospel. 
that God had given his peace child in the Lord Jesus who rose from the dead and would live forever. And he was the way in which any of these tribes could be reconciled to one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in Christ we have peace. Peace with you, peace with one another. We thank you. We praise you for this great peace that you have brought about. And we pray, Lord, if there be any in this room with any conscious controversy with one another, that they would pursue peace. Lord, we thank you. We give you the praise. And even now as we partake of communion, Lord, what, what a great way to express our unity as blood-bought people because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.